Oh, I can share. I can share my part of it. Um, and what I know, you know, Katie and I had a completely di- different relationship than she had with her father. And I think somebody has gifted their parents for a reason. And we both had our part to play. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Destigmatizing Addiction, A Family's Journey. And this episode is very close to home for us. I have a conversation with my next-door neighbors of 22 years, Eileen and Barry Cook. And we talk about their journey with their daughter, Katie, who died four months ago at the age of 31, of fentanyl poisoning. I've known Katie since she was about nine years old and I have so many fond memories, especially when I would drive her into town when I would go into work, when she was going to a community college and we had some wonderful conversations. My son Xander is also best friends with Eileen and Barry's son, OB, Katie's younger brother. So like I said, this is a very special one to me. I think it was so brave of Eileen and Barry to want to talk about their process and their journey with Katie and her 15-year struggle with drug addiction. You know, everybody, I think, is touched by somebody who has a substance use addiction, whether it's your own family, whether it's a friend that you know, co-worker, we're all touched by it. Fentanyl poisoning and overdose is becoming a widespread epidemic. It has become the number one cause of death among U.S. adults ages 18 to 45. It's a national emergency, folks. More adults between 18 and 45 died of fentanyl overdoses in 2020 than COVID-19, motor vehicle accidents, cancer, and suicide. In the last five years, the state of California has seen a 2,100% increase of fentanyl poisoning overdose. Let that sink in. And Eileen and Barry's story is just one of a family story of the challenges of this human tragedy. And yet, we want to talk about, and we do talk about, the aspect of destigmatizing addiction covers all walks of life, across all economic status, and people that are going through this challenge are just human beings, struggling, struggling to find connection, community, loving themselves, self-worth, self-esteem, a lot of struggles that every human being goes through. 
So we wanted to share the story to let people know that they're not alone, that they're loved, that there's compassion, and that families don't have to suffer in silence. In the show notes, there are links to some Facebook groups that are awareness on fentanyl poisoning for family support. And Eileen and Barry were kind enough and vulnerable enough and strong enough to share aspects of their own relationship throughout this journey with their daughter, Katie, and the challenges that they had with friends and family around this. And some of this conversation may feel sensitive to some people. Okay, folks. So I also want to just note that stay tuned at the end of the podcast. I have a little outro that I'm going to tell you about some upcoming workshops that I'm doing on the art of apology. Okay, here we go. Destigmatizing addiction, a family journey, a conversation with my neighbors, Eileen and Barry Cook. Let's talk about it. Thank you, neighbor, for coming over and wanting to have this discussion. Thank you for offering. Mm, it's yeah. a, something we really feel the need to talk about, and um, and we know you, and you're our neighbor, and and feel comfortable with that. I think it's such a intimate and important subject and conversation to have around destigmatizing addiction and and how. The relationships around family uh, evolve, how they transform, and your family really went through a transformation over how many years? Almost ten years, or or more, mm-hmm. or more. Yeah, it's um, more like fifteen mm-hmm. altogether. But it, it really started in the beginning, I think, at birth and who she was and and her level of anxiety. And how that led into her addiction, but also fed into her um, her strengths and her desire to get better. That was a big one. She always had a desire to get better. Yeah, yeah she worked at it really hard. Um, everything, yoga, meditation, the food she ate, um, mostly in her relationships with people and other people that were struggling and just... Um, just pulling up her bootstraps and moving forward. She worked real hard at it. And what was that like for you and and also Barry around having that hope? You know, because I I imagine that there was all these, you know, valleys and mountains around hope. Like, wow, she's really putting a lot of effort in. She's really getting healthier. Uh, There's been a streak of of sobriety or whatever. What what was that like for you, the, the ups and downs? The roller coaster yeah. of uh, emotions. Uh, a lot of it generated uh, a constant state of fight or flight. You know, being ready and never really trusting. Like, ah, you know, everything's okay because even in those moments, you were um, waiting for that phone call. And you got those phone calls often in times, huh? Different yeah. kind of phone calls. Yeah. 
middle of the night, you know, and knowing that you were going to rescue and never knowing what you were going to come upon. And then the last phone call where I think we knew. Do you want to share that last phone call at all? What that was like? Um, unexpected because she had worked so hard the last nine months in her recovery. Um, and she was happy. She was, she had blossomed. She was a different person. She was comfortable with herself and doing seven hours of rehab a day and then, you know, and walking everywhere she went because she lost her license in her cars and, um, and then going to work. And so in between that, she was walking in the forest or, or doing yoga or meditation or something. She it was always self-help. So when we got that phone call, it was kind of a shock. We, we kind of had a heads up that maybe things had gone a little south, but um, just felt she was strong. And so we, we kind of knew. Mm-hmm. I crumpled on the floor and Barry just said, I can't do this anymore. And, and so, yeah. And that phone call was from her boyfriend? Yes. And that's been a struggle in in some way for you because th- there was an enabling from him around using and and I know that you've gone through some evolution about anger towards him because there was times where Katie was um, going on the right path and he would kind of pull her into a path that was going down the wrong path and uh, so do you want to speak to anything about your evolution? about your feelings towards him? Oh, yeah, sure. It really plays a big part, I think, in um, my whole idea for this podcast about talking about stigmatism and relationships was that um, I just wanted to hate him. I wanted the worst to happen to him, but I also knew she loved him. And so accepting that codependency that they had and forgiving because if I, if I held that animosity towards him, I was also holding it towards her for her addiction. But she, I guess because she had worked so hard and I, I didn't feel like he had worked hard on his end and that he wasn't honoring what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was a weakness. It was a weakness he had and she forgave him for it. Um, I don't, we'll never know what happened in the hour that I, from when I talked to her and she was happy and had been horseback riding with her rehab and, um, was excited about plans for the next day. And then it was a little over an hour later that we got the phone call. And so I have to learn how to accept forgiving him and realize that, it is a stigma, you know, that I have against him as a, as a person and a user that um, it's kind of hard, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, I think it's a real good process for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that, that stigma that we're talking about, how you say that you have been trying to transform that with him, 
you also, your family felt that from outside, from other people, from family and friends of, you know, like, come on, you know, be harder on her. Get her, how come she can't get her shit together? Or people avoiding you at times. Can Do you want to talk to that isolation around how people treated your family and treated Katie? Yeah, there's, there's a real variety. Um, my niece, Jessie, wrote something for me uh, to help me understand her point of view of the stigma and how it affected her. And it, it was really well written and from the heart and very healing for her to write it. But um, I was her, it was kind of like, since I couldn't ask Katie anymore, I could hear it from her. And she shared a lot of the same feelings of isolation and people not understanding. Um, not so much judgmental coming from a bad place, but judgmental coming from um, not understanding, not feeling it themselves because they're not experiencing it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, I guess she really helped me to understand how, how important it is to send out a message to other people. How, how can we help people struggling with addiction or mental health? Because it makes them feel um, like they can't be themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they're just like a cancer, you know, eating away at society. When in reality, they are, you know, have a lot to offer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if we just, take the time to just hold the space and listen and try to understand, you know, that's why I think listening is, is the, is the aspect of having curiosity and interest to know somebody else's world instead of us putting our reality onto somebody else's world. And I know in reading uh, Jesse's uh, um, email, she talked a lot about just not feeling understood in that way of, having to live up to other people's expectations. And do you feel that Katie felt that she had to live up to expectations, other people's expectations? I, I think she was a, a force in herself that sometimes she didn't care. You know, she just wanted to be what she knew her pathway was. But she also didn't have the confidence because of how other people projected towards her, either brought on shame or guilt or inadequate feelings that while you're struggling with your recovery, you know, that that all is has a profound cancerous effect, you mm -hmm. know, on, on the person struggling. Yeah, didn't, didn't you say something about her walking into, was it a doctor's office or something and how the person wouldn't even look at her? Yeah. And, yeah, she. I was with her and just, you know, trying to stand back and, and let her handle it. And she went in and hovered near the desk and the person behind the desk was on the phone and just, you know, so she went and Katie went and sat down and the woman, you know, she went up once or twice and the woman never acknowledged her when she was done on the phone and then a new person came in the office and she addressed them right away. And I was like, well, <laughs> I, I think um, people tend to see when they look at someone that they don't feel is good enough. 
or not part of the society, you know, the, the way they dress or the way they carry themselves or their confidence, they definitely treat them different. Hmm. What was some of the transformation in that with with you and also with you and Barry of how you, you know, different pages that parents are on about how to handle, you know, helping their child go through, you know, this horrific aspects of, of addiction. How, how did that transform in your relationship or how was it affected? And I know in conversations that we had of how you said that Katie wanted to make sure that that didn't bring you both apart, that she was very adamant of of her addiction not bringing you apart. Can you share anything that around the transformations that you and Barry went through? Oh, I can share. I can share my part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I know, you know, Katie and I had a completely di- different relationship than she had with her father. And I think somebody has gifted their parents for a reason. And we both had our part to play as a woman, you know, the nurturer, I wanted to fix things and to make things easier. And also we shared a lot of conversations and I spent a lot of time with her. I wasn't perfect. I was probably too overbearing, overprotective and didn't allow her the space that say Barry allowed her. Um, so I looked at it from her perspective in, you know, the nurturing and, and the forgiveness. And um, and he, he can speak, you know, about how he felt about it, but he was more the rock and this, you know, firm. Mm. These are my expectations. I know you can do this because she was brilliant. You know, she was a smart girl. And what was it like when, when you and Barry weren't on the same page? And how did you maneuver that with each other? <laughs> I, uh, I, at times, I think I bullied him to try and see it our way, you mm. know, or my way. Um, used, used a lot of the strategies, a little bit of guilt, you know, um, just begging. <laughs> but we definitely saw saw it differently and handled it differently. And that um, that was hard on her. She did write a story when she was 25 about um, how she was placed on this earth to, to be a messenger, to bring love. And so I think she felt things a lot more. She was a lot more sensitive to how she affected other people but the addiction of some of these drugs are very strong and they do, you know, pull and tug and affect the person. Mm-hmm. And, and these, these people that have addictions um, are beautiful people and they are, they are their own unique person in this world and should be valued that way. And we just have to open our hearts to see who they are but mm. but as far as it, it affecting Barry and I 
she felt that and saw that as well. And she, that was part of her mission, I think. She felt like um, to change our hearts, open our hearts, um, because we also had our own problems and issues. And so she was pretty good at that mm. and, um, and really worked hard to, to pull us together. I read some of that journal that you were talking about when a, a common theme through it was how she wanted to, how she was talking to God and how she wanted to keep expressing her mission of love, but she was fearful that she was going to fail. Yeah. And um, that she knew that she had a big mission and, and, and that she would fail. Do you feel that she failed? I mean, when I think about my encounters and people that have encounters with Katie and hearing in the in the memorial several of her recovery friends and the interactions that she had with people, she did not fail at all, you know, of of her mission of 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 spreading love and acceptance and humor and and uh, determination. I'm just curious about when you read that about her fear of failure. Ah, um, I I feel like she definitely accomplished a lot in her lifetime. And I didn't find this and read it until after she had passed away. So um, it hurt to see that she felt that loneliness and that abandonment. But then she came back around in the writing and talked about, well, I have faith. I know you're that I have this guidance and you know with me to help me do this mission. I just feel like I've kind of I think with the drug use she felt like it was tainted and but still had that drive, you know, mm. to spread the love and and she did, you know, she especially when she was in recovery she was able to to feel more of a calmness and acceptance and a connection with other people and was healing a lot of her relationships that she had destroyed during her drug use and lifting people up so yeah. i i feel like i feel like she accomplished what she was sent here to do mm, yeah and she was determined i mean I don't know to the extent, of course, that that you're intimately involved with all the recovery programs that she went in and out of or attempted, and but there was this constant, what I recall hearing from you all, like, she's going to try it again, you know, she's going to give it another shot. And um, that just shows that, that the, the battling of, of that disease, how determined that she was to to try to live the life that, that she wanted. Absolutely. Uh, it It's not easy to get help for someone. They The main thing is they have to really want it themselves. And no matter what we do, you know, as parents, it has to be her and her decision. And um, there's a lot of addicts out there struggling and not being able to get help. Right. If you don't have insurance, you know, forget it. Yeah. And if you do have insurance, it's limited. It's 
30 days is not enough. And so she would jump from, you know, they'd, they'd boot her out of one program and she'd come home and regroup and lay in bed for a day or two. And then she would start making phone calls and line up the next, you know, re- recovery place. So it was a lot of work, a lot of phone calls. And uh, yeah, she she never gave up. She just, once once she set her mind that she could do it, she would go from one to the next. And in between, you know, when she wasn't in an actual center or recovery place, she would do the yoga. Um, she'd invite me down to her room to do meditation. She would say, hey, you know, let's go to the yoga center. And, and so I would let go and drop what I was doing because it was really precious to spend that time with her. What was like the times that maybe she came back after not um, fulfilling some of the recovery that, you know, friends and family, you know, had probably shit to say to you, you know, about some of their frustrations or judgments, you know, what, what was that like when hearing people give you some advice or tell you how things should be when they at all weren't? experience it or they're the armchair quarterback type thing what, what was that like i i did find myself altering what i had to say and how i said it i had um a really close friend that felt the need to support me and so her opinions were you know um not really directed in anger towards Katie, but frustration and just not understanding, you know, how, what drove me, you know, to continue to support her. So, and then I would like turn and talk to my sister who was um, totally supportive because of her daughter. And so we did share um, that understanding of total acceptance and stigma, you know, comes from not just outside sources, people out there in the world and everyday walk of life, you know, probably on the bus for her and and her workplace. And she found more acceptance in her recovery groups. But there was the stigma she had on herself and held herself accountable and the, the guilt that she felt and trying to move forward in her recovery while burdened with so much guilt. And then there was the stigma that the close people to her, you know, Mm. whether we want to admit it or not, you know, I might have been in my own way, you know, one of the hardest for her Mm. to, with the stigma, you know, of, of, um, we all think we know what's best for someone. Um, Jesse, said something about everyone's love language is different. And so since she went through all these programs, she really processed a lot and learned a lot and shared with Barry and I and helped us to grow. You know, Eileen, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit of my own projection of just thinking back of, I don't know if this, how many years ago this was, a couple of years ago when, when she had the, the OD in your, in your house and 
um, just right before that, you could tell the story right before that, how she instructed you on how to use um, the medication to bring her back. I'm just, my projection of how, how to, what was your feelings towards her that she, you know, did this to us in our house as opposed to this was just her addiction and the the poisoning of this of this drug that was pulling her instead of creating this experience or chaos for you because um, after hearing about that i was thinking wow like how how strong you have to be to to not only do that but then stay with the her in the recovery process can you speak to that at all what that was like well, I think it was at that point that that Barry um, held a mirror up to my face and said, we can't even keep her safe on our own home. She did, she did show me how to use Narcan explicitly, and I didn't, it didn't like wake me up at that moment. Can you tell what that is, Narcan is? It's, um... It's almost like the nasal spray that you, you know, you push the the thing and it, you know, up, up your nose. And um, which brings her back, like starts her heart again in some way, right? It's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but the, you got to, you know, she was real adamant, you know, this is exactly what you do and, and hold, you know, hold the mouth closed. And, and so I, I, at the time I was just thinking, you know, why? Why is she like, she was almost bugging me. It was like, why is she going through every little detail of how to use this? She showed me where it was in the drawer and um, I went upstairs and um, she had handed me something and said, hide this from me because I I don't want to have access to it. So I hid it up in my bedroom and went down and, and looked at my husband and I said, you know, this is what she asked me to do. And, and he said, yeah, she, her eyes look kind of funny. Um, and that seed planted in my head thought, made me go down and check on her again. I hollered down the steps. He went outside to, to, to the grill and I hollered down the steps and no answer. So I went down. Now, keep in mind, this is maybe two, three minutes. Time went by. I got to the bottom step and saw her slumping over and panicked, hollered for my husband, for Barry. He didn't hear me. He was outside. And we've, he finally heard me. He finally came in the house and came down, and, and we just went to work. We, we put her on her back. I ran and got the Narcan. He called 911. Um, they walked me through it. So it it was a, a in the moment experience, and we just looked at each other, Barry and I, in our eyes, and and did the best we could do. Listen to the operator on nine one one until um, his brother got there. They, um, he helped pull her out further into the hallway, and then the paramedics got there, and they ended up having to give her two more Narcane to revive her. And, you know, I talked with her about it afterwards. And she, of course, you know, it was hard on her that she put us through that. 
she had been through it herself with her fiance. Um, they they both used and um, they both saw each other pass out from lack of oxygen to the brain. And um, it brought Barry and I closer together. And in that realization that she could not even be safe at home with us right there. So, yeah. And I'm just thinking of, you know, after that, I remember, I remember for us, Rainbow and I thinking, you know, what kind of support can we give you? Do we talk about it? Do we bring it up? Do we, you know, when we would see each other on the road, you know, I know that I wanted to show that I cared, but I didn't know at times if I brought it up, would that stir something up? Do you feel that people, what did you want in some way from people of inquiring or or not inquiring? You know, that's the part I think that people get a little confused of what kind of support that families need at that time. Hmm. While, um, while she was still alive and dealing with addiction, I, I did feel the need to kind of hide it from the world. I felt the stigma. I felt like I couldn't talk about it. I wasn't so much ashamed of her. I was very proud of her. She was very courageous. I think what I needed from people was just to, um, yeah, to, to greet me, normal. I think that's what she wanted. She wanted to feel normal and, um, and to be able to talk about it as what it was and not what I needed to sugarcoat it to be or what I needed to withhold from certain people because they couldn't handle it or understand it. And there's all kinds of pain. Mm-hmm. opinions out there yeah. and and everybody comes from their own right um, experiences in life yeah. and I have to learn to accept that as well yeah. but but as um, after she passed I think I want people to ask about it yeah. I want to be able to talk frankly about it yeah hold it up to the light mm-hmm as we mentioned, Jesse before, uh, her cousin that's also battling addiction and, and mental illness, she also broadened that aspect of the challenge to be able to speak to it and talk about it and not bury it. And uh, her, Katie talked about it a lot, where Jesse talked about how she didn't talk about it, she needed to keep it in to feel safe. So it seems like people deal with it in all different ways. So what I'm hearing from you too is it's also checking in. How how do you want how do you want me to address you? What do you need right now? Do you want to talk about it? Do you not want to talk about it? I'm here if you do want to talk about it. And I think just even that opening for people that are going through the struggle or even family, for other people to not assume what people want to need, but to ask. Mm-hmm. What do you need? And and to know that that can change day to day. What do you need and want from me today doesn't necessarily mean what you need and want from me in next week. So right. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, that is um, that's pretty profound because everyone's different, and uh, there's there's moments when you know I do want somebody to ask me about it, and I know it's going to make me cry, 
or or not or be you know they want they're expecting me to cry and I don't so just be open to you know tap into that person's feelings and uh, my son had a lot to say about that you know connecting with the person you know think really thinking about things before you say things mm-hmm. and thinking about your actions before you do them especially when some you're dealing with somebody who's going through so much struggle so courageously and know that what they're up against they don't need our judgment yeah. you know so as a spokesperson you know it's good to tap into Jesse because she um, is is more about you know how she feels emotionally um, not so much addiction so um, they were uh, her and it was her cousin and they were a lot alike in a lot of ways and both very beautiful people with a lot to give so I, I really appreciate her sharing with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was hard. I think that's a big message of, you know, people that are struggling with with substance use are beautiful people and they got a lot to give. Oh my and gosh. we can't just see them just for their substance use and that behavior, but to see them for all that they have to give to the world, just like everybody else. Because everybody else is struggling with all kinds of different ways and it's now so much outward as we see addiction is. So I think that that's a huge lesson. Yeah. Yeah. If you know someone has cancer, you know, there's all this sympathy and well, there should be the same with someone who struggles with addiction. Right. It just, it can't be seen, Mm -hmm. you know, inside the person, you just see what it does to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, But I, I have been blessed to get to know some of the folks in her recovery and the different programs and they're all so much more than their addiction. Mm-hmm. And they need to be honored for that. Yeah. That's a good point that you brought up around like other diseases like cancer and so forth, and especially caretakers. When we look at caretakers of family members that are taking care of people, we want to help them because we know the exhaustion that can take place being a caretaker for somebody who's physically ill. But we don't usually juxtapose that to people that are supporting people that are going through addiction and the wear and tear that could take. Um, so instead of the what people usually have compassion for family members that are caretakers, I think sometimes it's more judgment with the people that are caretaking somebody who has an addiction. That's sad. We're an enabler mm. instead of a caretaker. Yeah. This is how some people look at it. Yeah, All right. Hmm. Well, I know we talked about to get Barry on and talk a little bit and, and would love to do that and then come back and, and talk with you a bit to do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's got a lot to, a lot of important things to say. Yeah. All right. All right. Hey, Barry, thanks so much for wanting to also come in and, and share. And um, I know this is uh, such a sensitive time and, and but you know when we were talking the other day, how open that you were to. I love the story that you said. The moment that that things really changed for you about your perception with Katie of how almost in a moment, like you, it really shifted for you 
that um, more acceptance and love came in. Can can you speak to that moment? Uh, I had. I'm sure Katie and I were having a discussion about uh, something that was going on at the time, and I probably was giving her hell and uh, projecting that I just didn't understand how things could be going the way things are going and that life was all about choices. And she looked at me and just as sincere as anybody's ever been, and she said, Dad, I never chose to become an addict. And that... That was that was the moment you're referring to, and I realized that it was it was that moment where instead of being so judgmental, I became more compassionate, and I looked at I began to look at my daughter as my daughter, who I love dearly, rather than my daughter, the addict. Hmm. Yeah, I. It's interesting because I remember just. Uh, maybe a few years ago when that happened, seeing you on the road, and sometimes when I ask about Katie, it just really seemed that it shifted for you how you talked about it too. You just talked about, you know, bless her heart, how how hard she's working, and you know she walks to work, and and there was an energy about it that shifted for you of that kind of acceptance and and in some way admiration for her. Yeah, that was that was huge. I think that that's that's uh, what compassion is all about. That's what compassion will do for you. It gives you a a, a little different perspective, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sure that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And what was that like for your your other daughters, Kitty's older sisters? Of um, when you realized more compassion, did you have conversations with them when they didn't, or? Uh, did you just let them have their own process of how they were relating to Katie? We've we've always been uh, able to discuss our feelings openly. Um, not so much as a group. We've we never had group therapy or group discussions about Katie. Uh, never had group discussions with her, which might have been a good idea. But uh, I think that. Part of their feelings prior to uh, my understanding, part of their feelings were were uh, influenced by me because I was more well. I, you know, your sister has done this and she's done that, and I just don't understand. And and they picked up on a lot of that, mm. and. I think if I had handled it a little bit differently, they would have handled it different, differently as well. But when uh, I, I reached the uh, point where I I finally got it, and at that point, I think they sensed a change as well. Do you think they were protecting you in some way when they were knowing that Casey that Katie was causing you and Eileen more stress? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. There was that aspect of, you know, their thoughts were, Dad, you and Eileen have, have been putting up with putting up with this, or 
living this same routine for a number of years now, aren't you? Aren't you tired? Aren't you mm. weary? Aren't you? Uh, aren't you just sick of it? And uh, I think they were feeling the same things, or they they wouldn't have expressed it to me. And uh, it was tiring to a point, but that's life. Yeah, it is. You know, when Eileen was telling that story about when Katie OD'd in the house and and that you used uh, Narcon to, to bring her back and and the expression that, that Eileen used that you told us in, in a story before when we were talking some days ago, what it was like for a man, a, a, a father, a protector, that you know that if your family is home, I, I have the sense when my family is home, they're safe. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's mm-hmm. all I want, right? It's like a snowstorm. Just bring that car home. Ah, now they're safe. And you, you looked at me, and he just said that was a realization. That what was that for you? That when that happened? Um, I think it was at that time. I, it was a feeling of helplessness, not hopelessness. Because I did feel completely helpless. And when one of my children is in my house and I couldn't care for her and take care of her and protect her, it, I just felt totally helpless. And as a parent, I think I always I always feel like I could have done more. I think any parent who really loves their children would have those feelings from time to time. There's something that I could have done that may have changed the outcome. And I just didn't do it. Um, but I, you know, I grieve, and I live with those feelings. But I think that uh, what was more important is that is that, or is that my children are happy, Katie included. Their happiness is is everything. And where does your happiness fall around all of this? Well. <laughs> That's funny. I, you know, if there's any relief or happiness in uh, in the loss of a child, knowing how close Katie's relationship was with the Spirit, and and all I ever want for any of my children is to is for them to love Jesus and and be happy and be. F- Hardworking, contribut- contributing members of society, and uh, but I think that her relationship, knowing what it was, helps with the grieving process because I know that she's not struggling anymore. That's a big one, right? That she's not struggling anymore; she's out of pain. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about the the relief that you know that Eileen doesn't have to uh, wait for that phone call anymore? Oh, that's. I think that has led to her being able to relax. Uh, for years, there there wasn't me much relaxation. I even uh, going to sleep at night is just going through the motions, so to speak, because the first little twitter on the telephone or the sound of of uh, the wind chime on the front porch, it's. Couldn't sleep through any of it, and uh, that's not to say that that everything 
that ever happened was put us into a alert or a, a, you know, a feeling of terror. But at times when the phone rang, when we hang up, it was it was one of those feelings. I was how could how could it ever be any worse? What do we do now? Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, you're open to talk about this, so you know, real and authentic about it. And and I know one of the um, reasons that you and Eileen wanted to um, have this podcast with me was around just helping other families just realize um, to come into connection and love and acceptance and um, to take away as much judgment as we can to people that are struggling with addiction. So um, it seems like your transformation in that process is, is, has happened, but is it continuously ongoing with your awareness? Absolutely ongoing. I think that uh, the two biggest things to uh, to to destigmatizing addiction uh, and removing judgment are understanding and compassion. And I'm pretty new to this. I'm I'm just beginning to understand. Uh, don't worry, man. If people don't get done. Only stakes get done. That's yeah. right. <laughs> that's right. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But and there's a lot. There's a lot more to do. It's every day's a new day, and I I try to look forward to every day. Hmm. Thankful. Yeah. So thankful. Yeah. Well, I look forward every day when I see you as a neighbor and all the all the years of support and help that you've given my family. And your your home was a second home to my son being. Uh, your son, Ob, his best friend. So I, I thank you so much for, for all that you've given to our family. Oh, and I thank you, you and Rainbow. You were, you were parents to my son mm. and my daughter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We love you all. We love you. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're back with me, Eileen, and and. Uh, that journey that Barry was talking about, boy, you guys have really had a journey, and you gave a really interesting analogy to that several days ago. What was that? Mm. I likened it to being on the river in a raft, uh, white water, navigating. Class five. <laughs> yeah, class five, um, <clears throat> navigating. Everybody paddling as hard as they can, um, bouncing around in the boat, and... Um, getting wet, you know, and and just exerting all our energy, and, and Katie included, in the boat. And so, like, we're, we were all together in this, mm. and it wasn't an easy journey until you got to the restful places where you could coast. And then you would hit that, that turbulence again. And it just, um, I think you had said, you know, you get really wet, and you could fall out of the boat. You know, which um, did happen to, you know, either one of us, any one of us at, at times. I think family is like a tapestry. Mm-hmm. We all have our own gifts and different colors of yarn and threads and textures. And, you know, sometimes it's a little naughty and sometimes it's, you know, woven together beautifully. 
but it's all important for the tapestry. Mm, yeah. That's a beautiful analogy of like being in the same boat and and uh, people that are going into recovery too, they have this support system that they don't feel as lonely because in reading some of Katie's journal, she talked about going from that feeling of loneliness and isolation. And then when she found aspects of connection and community in recovery, that really changed so many people's lives too, including yours, I know. Can you speak to that? And, um, yeah, she she actually has a, a physical uh, recovery blanket that she started working on when she went into recovery. And it knitted, does knitted. use um, crochet. Crochet. And she brought it everywhere. Her friends, you know, all of them made comments on her and all her bags, many bags and her yarn trailing along behind her. And, and she didn't, she used all the different colors and all the different textures. And, um, and it was kind of like an outward display of what she was going through. But um, <clears throat> um, it was, we have that blanket now to remind us mm. and to remind us of her journey. Mm. And her people in recovery all were there for part of that. So they represent um, part of her healing and they're healing, helping each other heal because they understand each other and they don't judge each other and have, have that forgiveness and that allows space for the recovery. So it's actually the people in recovery. You know, I think the, the people running the facility are just guides, but I think they really, they really um, meant a lot to each other yeah. on their journey. And again, that part about Katie's mission and her fear of failing, and some people would look at, you know, um, dying through this process as, as a failure, but yet... I don't see that at all because of all that we're talking about, but also knowing how the impact that makes on other people that's in recovery of wanting to even work harder for Katie, you know, and the inspiration that Katie gave, the, sometimes the people's memories are even stronger than if they stay alive with us um, because we know that they're, they're around us in such a more energetic way. So I think Katie's going to be helping a lot of people in in their own recovery and hopefully through this podcast and this story, um, helping families too. Mm. Well put. Yeah. Well, before we go, I know that the, the, this little, it's a, it's definitely a vulnerable and sensitive part of it, but I know, I, I know we talked about, I would love for you to, to tell your experience of, of your of your last moments with, with Katie in November and how that was for you? Oh, it gathered us together as a family and no one hesitated. Everyone came and, and we spent two and a half, three days um, holding each other up. and um, Because she was in the hospital and she was on life support. Right. And she... she um, the paramedics brought her to the hospital. They she never regained consciousness, and um, so we didn't get to really be able to communicate with her because she was on a lot of medication, and they were just trying to keep her alive. She had lost too much oxygen, and um, it was hard hearing the news. The doctor had to say that um, 
the loss of oxygen would not allow her to live a, a life of quality. But in <clears throat> in seeing her mission, um, I don't look at it as a failure. Her death is a failure. I I I see where you know it affects me and how I can move forward. I um, other family members, you know, we. We all were dealing with it in our in our own way. I had quit smoking uh, when Katie went into recovery, and it was so easy. But when we were in the hospital, I I still would not allow myself to have a cigarette because of my anxiety. It was as long as there was still hope, and um, of course, all the smokers, you know. They went out and they had their own addictions that they had to <laughs> tend to. Yeah, yeah. And um when we realized we had to let her go and took her off life support, um we were all in the room with her. Boy was she strong. You know, it just showed her courage. They took we, we combed her hair and um took all the life support off so that it was her and not all the wires and and such. And um, started crying, you know. I, I didn't cry through the whole thing. I didn't. I, I just wanted to be really present. And so, but, you know, understandably, the family just, you know, we thought it would just take a few minutes. And she hung in there for two and a half hours and shows how strong she was and her her will and um, so it was kind of um, precious to me to be able to hear her last breath and put my head on her heart and hear her last heartbeat. Um, to help release her spirit. Beautiful gift she gave you. And I hope to move forward with it. You know, there's that message of love and acceptance. Um, I want y'all to, to think about it and let it open your heart. Mm. Well. And know that your journey is your journey. And it's okay to feel the feelings you're feeling and to, you know, to be a part of your family how you're a part of your family. Just open your hearts and listen to each other. It's a beautiful message. Thank you so much for sharing all of this and wanting to share it with us and and have this intimate moment. I so appreciate you. I love you. And I'm so glad that you're part of my family's life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's... um. You know, that it takes a village is there is a lot of truth to that. And I think she felt um, comforted here at our little a little place in the woods mm-hmm. and knew she could walk the road and see a friendly neighbor. Mm-hmm. We love you, Katie. We love you, Katie. <laughs> And before we go, I want to tell you about a new workshop that I'm offering, The Art of Apology. 
It's a live Zoom workshop for couples on two different dates that you can choose from, Sunday, April 24th, or May 15th, from 1 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is a powerful, powerful workshop because, you know, unfortunately, many couples, they don't apologize often enough or some never do. You know, one or both may allow their pride to get in the way, even when they know they are wrong. And there's a deep wounding that occurs when a person we care refuses to apologize. And in time, the wounding can cause us to close down emotionally or to become emotionally distant, angry, or bitter. And admitting fault or apologizing for hurting your partner's feelings in a sincere and genuine manner not only shows love, but strength and commitment. I think it's the most powerful words besides I love you is to really know how to say I'm sorry and to really own it, to take accountability, to take responsibility, not defend, not explain, but to show empathy and understanding. So I will walk you through this process and you and your partner will learn how to give each other a very sincere and deep apology. So to learn more and to register, you can go to my website, prepo.com, click on Relationships Let's Learn About It on the online workshop. It is a must-needed skill. So I hope to see you there. Okay, everybody, I am sending you my love And I hope that you are loving each other out there. We all need it. That's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody. I truly hope that you make yourselves a beautiful, beautiful day. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more about licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit prepo.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling or therapy, medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice.